Welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Lee Rennick, Executive Director, CIO Communities for CIO.com, and I'm very excited to welcome Mark Schwartz, Enterprise Strategist, AWS, and author of Adaptive Ethics for Digital Transformation, A New Approach for Enterprise Leaders, which was just released about a month ago, and it's Mark's fifth book. Mark, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your current role and your current book. Hi, my name is Mark Schwartz. I'm an enterprise strategist with Amazon Web Services. What that means is that I'm part of a small team of former C-suite executives of large organizations. All of us did a big digital transformation. All of us did a, a big move to the cloud. And uh, we learned some lessons from doing that. So we try to share our learnings with executives of large AWS customers to try to help with things like cultural change and organizational structure and governance models and investment strategies and pretty much all the non-technical things that tend to be challenging for organizations. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I really appreciate you joining us here today, Mark. We have created this series to support the technology leader in their tech and leadership journey. And we are gonna talk about your book today, which is super exciting. But first question, um, could you please tell us a little bit about your own career path and maybe provide some insights or tips on that road path? Any lessons learned that you could share for the technology leader? Mm, sure. Um, maybe I'll skip some of the diversions along the way. Let's say uh, I, I uh, early in my career, I was a software developer and became a, a leader of software development efforts and had a little time in management consulting. Uh, but the part that I'll that I'll tell you a little bit more about is after finishing an MBA and um, winding up as the CEO of a small software company, uh, which I did for a few years, and then I became the CIO of a company based in San Francisco, a really interesting company that runs international cultural exchange programs like au pairs and work and travel and high school year abroad and things like that. Uh, and at some point when I felt like it was time for change, I just somehow all of a sudden became interested in government IT. I don't know where that came from. I was reading an article about how um, how messed up IT is in the government. And, you know, being the problem solver that I am, I thought, well, let me just go and fix that. So um, I mean, I'm happy to report that uh, that's exactly what happened. The US government is now running like clockwork. Uh, everything's all fixed, no problem. Wound up <laughs> strangely joining US Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, to me, this was just a fascinating challenge. How do, you, how do you transform an organization? How do you bring in new ways of thinking when it's a traditional old organization? that has uh, a very um, well-defined culture, let's say, uh, that has to be changed. And uh, a lot of formal policies and bureaucracy and all sorts of things that make it hard to cause deep change. And how can we do it? And uh, I, I sometimes tell people I spent seven years banging my head against the wall and finally the wall started to move. We, we accomplished some pretty amazing things there and learned a lot of lessons. And when I finished with that, I joined AWS in this role that I just told you about. I've had a chance to see you speak at a conference that I hosted at a former organization I was working with and you talked about some of the ways you had to move your leadership and change your leadership skills and be adaptive. Um, certainly in your leadership journey when you were in that role. And I remember a specific story about you watching the TV when you had a specific digital transformation, amount of time to do something within the government was 18 months and your boss 
I believe who was Obama, was on the TV saying, we're going to do this in 90 days. So that must must have really been um, for you a challenge just to adapt your own leadership and look at all and really build into the whole strategic aspect of that organization. Um, so very interesting yeah. story. One thing we learned is that, um, sometimes a crisis helps, uh, you know, if you're, if you're having trouble changing an organization, then, I mean, uh, government organizations are amazing in many ways. And one way is that they pull together when they need to. Uh, so we were able to finish that project in 60 days, but that made us realize that, uh, it wasn't sustainable. We had to find a way to repeatedly be responsive to changes in immigration and other, other sorts of changes. And that gave some urgency and importance to our transformation. Right. And this is very interesting because when we joined this call, I was talking about all of your books, you've written a number of books and, you know, there's such a connection between the topics and the themes, but it almost seems like a connection to a leadership journey for me. So you're, wrote your first book, The Art of Business Value, with a chapter about the value of the CIO, which really leads to your next book, which is A Seat at the Table, which talks about, you know, business and IT working together. My favorite is the next War and Peace in IT. It's one of my favorites. And it's followed by The Delicate Art of Bureaucracy, which inspired you to think about ethics and really write this book. This book, I'm going to hold it up. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about the progressive themes that I just mentioned and how perhaps, you know, they are tied into stages of digital transformation or perhaps the leadership journey for the tech leader? Yeah. Oh, one thing that I've learned along the way is that um, you, you can't, uh, you have to actually be in the position of leadership or authority to realize what's really hard about it. You know, <laughs> as I as I was CIO for several organizations, um, it became very clear what's hard about the CIO role. And um, I made a number of mistakes, of course, and learned from them. And uh, I thought maybe I could write a little bit uh, about some of the issues that were really challenging for CIOs. So I started with the book on business value, uh, partly because uh, nobody else had written it. Uh, you know, that, at least that's the way I felt at the time. We're talking so much about business value and IT and, and how, uh, you know, in the agile world, it's all about delivering value, not, not about milestones and timelines and things like that. And so everybody was talking about business value and nobody was saying what that meant. And I realized that it, it's actually not so obvious. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions. There are a lot of sort of unexplored areas in business value. So I, I wrote that book. And one of my concerns at the time was um, in the agile world where you have autonomous, empowered teams working directly with, with the business, what's the role of the CIO? You know, what does the CIO do in that case? Um, if the teams are autonomous, they're working directly with the business, where's the CIO in that picture? So uh, that was one of the ideas that I was exploring. And it led me to this uh, train of thought about how IT fits into a business organization, this distinction between IT and the business as if they're two separate things. And what role the CIO plays there? So that's that's why I wound up writing about uh, seat at the table. Um, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things I explored in that book was that business IT distinction. You know, as if there was a wall between the two. And um, since that book was written mostly for CIOs, I decided to write 
a similar book, but from the perspective of non-IT CXOs, you know, how do you work with your IT organization to be successful? So that's that's what uh, started me on War and Peace in IT. Um, and then uh, I knew that I had learned a lot of lessons in the government that I should share um, because, uh, you know, government obviously is very bureaucratic and has has this very uh, rigid culture. But the truth is, it's not just the government. Uh, bureaucracy is everywhere. In fact, sometimes when I would speak in public about bureaucracy, people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I work for a bank and our bureaucracy is even worse than that, you know, that that sort of thing. And um, so I, I became interested in this topic of bureaucracy and, and sharing some of the lessons I learned about it. And once again, I found as I was writing, it was a much more interesting subject than it might seem at first. And then uh, how that led to this book um, I, I, at one point in the bureaucracy book, I said, bureaucracy is an ethics, uh, which it is. Um, but I realized that I would probably have to explain that. And, uh, when I started to think about ethics and, and, you know, I could talk about this forever, but one of the things that jumped out at me is that organizations are kind of in the middle of a, a big ethical transformation. There's this, this ethics that's associated with bureaucracy, which has been the uh, sort of underlying assumed um, ethical framework for businesses until now. And in the digital world, it's changing in very fundamental ways. And it's hard to be successful with a digital transformation unless you start to adopt this new ethical framework or, or way of thinking. So that's how I wound up with a book on ethics. It's incredible, really. And, um, you know, congratulations on all the books, but but really that whole journey between the books um, is really interesting for me. And it feels like when I talk to CIOs and tech leaders, and even for myself, that idea of, you know, that evolution, especially when COVID hit, I mean, all of the things that you've talked about, you know, the value of communicating with your IT business unit, the value of the business and the IT, how do you be, have a seat at the board table? These are all things that CIOs talk about very specifically on a regular basis to me. And so I, I thought it's really interesting how that all came together for you and is like a journey in reading almost as well too. Um, and so, you know, it is a great book and, and thank you again, I'm gonna hold it up again, but it's Adaptive Ethics for Digital Transformation, <laughs> a new approach for enterprise leaders. And it features Frankenstein versus the gingerbread man, which is very interesting as well. So, but I want to talk a little bit about it. You, you know, you start off and you say, I really don't have a background in ethics, but yet it's so, as you say, integrated into everything we do. So um, can you talk a little bit about, you just mentioned it really about why you were inspired to do it, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that just a little bit more and how it really impacts on digital transformation. One thing I should say is when I was writing my book about bureaucracy, uh, of course, I was thinking like uh, it, this has to be interesting, and you know most people think bureaucracy is not such an interesting topic. So I I, uh, I was a little playful in my treatment of it, and then when it came to writing about ethics, uh, I had a similar challenge. You know, the to really talk about ethics, you need to explore the history of philosophy a little bit, yeah. and I I didn't want it to be dull. Yeah. Um, so. That explains a little bit the the playfulness in the book. It's it's actually fun, I think. Uh, same with the bureaucracy book. Um, so I I do have a master's degree in philosophy from Yale University, uh, way back way back in my career. Um, 
but uh, I was never really interested in ethics, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't learn much about it. But the background in philosophy gave me sort of a head start in understanding as I researched this book. Uh, and I did do quite a lot of research, um, uh, especially contemporary approaches to philosophical ethics. But anyway, that's not, um, uh, that's just sort of a, uh, a piece of what's in this book. Mostly I'm talking about the implications for business leaders and the thought process that business leaders have to go through to make ethical decisions today. And one of the points I'm trying to make is that um, ethics isn't always about big good versus evil sorts of decisions. You know, the, the, the media, the press often frame it that way. They talk about the big ethical issues, but a lot of ethical decisions are normal day-to-day -day decisions that you have to make as a leader. And um, my contention is that we had a set of assumptions about what's ethical that was associated with normal companies up till now, what I call bureaucratic companies, um, and, and that that's breaking down. So uh, to give you an example, one of the core principles of a bureaucratic organization is you should never bring yourself to work. You know, you leave your personal self at home. When you come to work, your job is to execute your role without any personal bias or feelings or whatever. That's that's just sort of a core principle of bureaucracy. And it's it's been the way businesses have run, more or less. Uh, it's a principle of impersonality. You do your job impersonally. Um, what's happening right now with this emphasis on diversity and inclusion is we're uh, very much asking people to bring themselves to work and in fact, valuing it. It, uh, uh, it provides value to the organization when you have a diverse group of people and you, you synthesize their contributions. Um, so what used to be a core ethical principle, don't bring yourself to work, um, it doesn't really work very well anymore. Uh, another example is since the bureaucratic organization, large company structure evolved generally with factories in the industrial revolution, it's very focused on production and productivity. Uh, your, your job when you go to work is your employer owns your time, let's say nine to five. And during that time, you have an obligation to produce as much as possible. So anytime you're not producing, you're essentially stealing from your employer. Uh, but the way to, to measure your contribution is in productivity. How much did you produce? Uh, now our organizations are much more focused on knowledge work. Not that the factory work doesn't exist, but I'm, I'm writing mostly for knowledge workers uh, where innovation is expected and uh, there's a social aspect to it. Productivity isn't really the right metric anymore, but you find organizations who sort of have one foot in both worlds trying very hard to measure productivity. Um, and as a result, in a panic that people are working from home where it's harder to measure productivity, you know, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, um, it's a struggle to find ways to measure productivity. But uh, maybe it's not the right thing to be measuring anymore. So a lot, a lot is changing. 
And when I went down that path, I saw just how deep that change is. Uh, and I wanted to write about that because I think it affects the way that leaders have to make decisions today. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think for me, when reading the book, there's those I'm having those aha light bulb moments just around how I approach my own leadership. So I've really found it very impactful. And um, and it also also allows you to reflect on other businesses and your daily life and your daily work life. So, you know, you've provided a few key highlights here for the reader. Sorry, but, you know, I'm thinking. I, I have to uh, admit something, actually. The reason why the lights go on sometimes is because I made a mistake in my career. You know, I made a mistake and I had to think about it. Yeah. And I don't necessarily talk about those mistakes in the book. But it, it rings true, you know, because of, it's based on that real experience of, of not doing things right. In this book, I actually uh, give three examples at the beginning of sort yeah. of everyday ethical decisions I had to make and where, I don't know, I might have made the right decision or the wrong decision, but I, I certainly want to uh, make it clear that they're problematic cases where uh, tuitions were not clear and maybe other people's intuitions wouldn't be so clear. Yeah, no, those examples in the beginning of the book are really interesting. And chapter six is very interesting. It has an interesting title, but it covers really inauthentic communication, you know, and things like, and I, this just made me reflect on things like your call is important to us, but actually how important is that call? <laughs> or, <laughs> or breaking news when it's actually, you know, nothing major going on in the world, but a squirrel having, you know, jumped off whatever, right? So <laughs> I found that one really interesting. So, um, and it made me reflect on what I'm consuming as a consumer and as a leader and how that impacts on my own leadership from an ethics perspective, right? So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how, you know, the book reflect, reflects on adaptive ethics, but how you see, see that as supporting the IT leader in their own tech journey. First of all, I, I'm very interested in language. You know, I, lo I love language and I listen carefully and I, I notice these patterns. And uh, as you said, a lot of the patterns in communications coming from companies today are very inauthentic. And um, it, it's, um, I, I relate it to the bureaucratic way of thinking where impersonality is key. You know, it's, there isn't a real person talking to you when a company talks to you. It's, it's inauthentic at a certain level. What's really interesting today, though, is it's an article of faith in the digital world that we want to build relationships with our customers. We want to build intimate relationships and, and so on. Uh, we're looking for personalization and a certain amount of customer intimacy. And um, there are a lot of ways that that is breaking down, that it is, it, or I shouldn't say it's breaking down, it, it isn't real. Um, the intimacy is maybe the wrong goal to begin with, but it, we're certainly not achieving it. And one of those areas has to do with this inauthentic communication. You know, the, when, you, um, when you go to a company's website today, often there are a lot of attempts to make it very personal. Your, your name is used all over the website and uh, information is specific to your tastes and preferences and so on. And the underlying message of it all is we're friends. You know, the company is a friend of mine. 
Um, I'm a member of a lot of loyalty programs because I travel so much, and the the uh, companies that I'm that I'm uh, talking to are trying to make it sound like we have some sort of special relationship. I'm a platinum elite, whatever, yada yada. It undermines that when you speak inauthentically to your customers. Um, you know, the you're saying we have a close relationship, but by the way, uh, we're going to say things to you like your call is important to us, blah, blah, yeah. blah, which you know is nonsense. Or um, I also talk about direct mail solicitations that I get, you know, where the envelope says important information enclosed, open immediately, kind of aware. Obviously, it's not important information, but presumably this is a company that wants me as a customer. And so they want to start a relationship with me and they're going to do it in this dishonest sort of way. Um, so I found that uh, a little bizarre, you know, that... Um, uh, we're shooting for this kind of intimacy with customers, and at the same time, we're undermining that intimacy. We are, um, in some cases, using their personal information and reselling it and things like that, which you don't do in a, in a friendly relationship with somebody. Uh, and in fact, it's ethically problematic, perhaps, or, or there are some questions to be aware of there, because friendship has ethical obligations, right? A fr friendship is sort of a metaphor here, right? A uh, company is trying to pretend to be my friend, but they're not going to accept the obligations of being a friend, uh, which go very deep in a society. So it, it's kind of a, a problematic metaphor to think in terms of building that kind of a friendly relationship with customers. Yeah, and I think for that particular chapter for the tech leader, it provides them, it just allows you to reflect I think the journey in the book takes you to a place where you can reflect personally on these types of things that you give as examples to then, you know, how do you convert that to what the customer journey will be within your company. So um, very impactful. So my last question for you, and I'm asking every CIO leader and tech leader I'm interviewing right now is around Gen AI and large language models. It's such a hot topic. And obviously what I'm getting from the CIOs and the senior leaders I'm speaking with is they are concerned about things like ethics, right? And, you know, privacy, ethics, uh, diversity, all of those types of things that could be flawed when using, you know, Gen AI and large language models. So would love to just learn a little bit about your thoughts. You've just been at two major conferences, so I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of people as well. So what are your thoughts here, Mark? Yeah, I speak to a lot of CIOs as well and other executives, and it's on everybody's minds, uh, both, you know, where are things going? What should we be doing with Gen AI? And then secondly, how can we do it responsibly? Um, so um, one of the things I say in the book is let's not pretend that we already know all the rules. In fact, it would be nice as an executive if there was a rule book out there and, and you could consult the rules and say, here's what I should do, here's what I shouldn't do. Uh, but unfortunately, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, ethics is more complicated than that. And especially when it's something that's really emerging, we don't have a lot of good intuitions about, about what's right and what's wrong in AI. We know some things that bother us a lot, um, you know, that, that um, uh, ring the warning bells and say we should be really careful with this and that. But um, I think the ethical norms and ethical standards are going to evolve. And we're at this moment right now where it's very early in that evolution. Um, so to me, this is yet another reason why companies need agility. You know, they need they need to sense changes in 
the ethical standards and respond to them. Uh, so that's that's one observation. Another observation is that we tend to focus on um, on rules and and guardrails as a way of enforcing good behavior. That that kind of comes with the bureaucratic um, way of thinking. Um, that you know your company needs a code of conduct, and and you're going to control people's behavior by saying what the code of conduct is. Um, and actually, uh, that is not. It doesn't seem like a very effective way to enforce ethical standards. Um, a clear example was Enron, uh, which had uh, its four ethical principles on a, on a big banner in the lobby and a code of conduct with all sorts of things in it, uh, but employees were not actually paying attention to it. It's those, those guardrails and rules aren't what really controls behavior in an organization. The easiest way to think about what actually does is, is in terms of culture. You know, you have a, a culture in the organization and, um, you know, that's a vague word that means all sorts of things, but um, that's what's actually going to determine people's actions in the organization. What what uh, kind of behaviors get reinforced by others and so on. While our initial impulse might be to think in terms of rules and making rules and enforcing rules, what we really need to do is encourage employees to care about the people that they're dealing with, you know, the, the people in their database, the people who are going to be listening to what the Gen AI says, they, you know, uh, to authentically care about those people. And if you're driven by care for people, then you're probably going to make the right decisions in cases where the rules aren't that clear, or even in the in the cases where the rules are clear and the culture is uh, less clear. I really appreciate that. It's a great way, I think, to end this conversation, but maybe we can pick one up at another time again, just around this in a few months. It'd be great to do that. And I thank you very much, for Mark, for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And if you're interested in learning more about this video or Mark's book, we'll make sure we host it at CIO.com and we'll have a link with more information. Thanks again.